0: As a rogue, it's easy for me to spot the perfect mark. I get anything I want with a little distraction and patience. But as a role player, screw patience. I can't wait for my Dungeon Crate to arrive every month. Dungeon Crate brings me amazing RPG accessories like dice, minis, adventures, and lots more. And rumor has it around the guild, you also get a digital crate with even more secret extras. Dungeon Crate has what I want. Take what you deserve and become a member of Dungeon Crate today. At dungeoncrate.com.
1: I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now, you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading.
2: Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond.
0: Ready, go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear
1: fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello. Welcome back to the Appendix End Book Club podcast. I'm your co host, Hoy. And with me, as always, is that shadowy dark circle beast himself, Jeff Goad. Hello. And with us this week is a very special guest, Ethan Schoonover. Hello, Ethan. Hello, Hoy and Jeff. Good to be here. And Ethan, you are the DM of the, this is a mouthful, Lake Washington Girls Middle School Dungeons & Dragons Club. <laughs> I am indeed, yes. Right.
2: Um, A.K.A. hashtag d d girls. That's
0: right. Okay. On Twitter, you can you can right. follow our exploits on that hashtag. Right. right. And how did you get that gig? Were
1: you a teacher to begin with? Or yeah, is something- yeah.
0: Um, so I started off, this was um, phew, three years ago. I uh, took a job as tech director at the school, which was a little bit of a left turn for me. I was in kind of more of a, a corporate world prior to that. Um, but I just uh i kind of gotten my toes wet in some education stuff, and I thought, hey, this would be you know uh pretty neat and uh so I took that job, and uh with the uh, stipulation that I wouldn't be teaching or running any after school activities and within two months, I was teaching and running after school
2: activities <laughs> um,
0: and a lot of it was based around you know programming initially and i I sort of developed you know i built up some credibility with the school to the point that at at some point um a Friday night slot opened up, and they came to me, and they were like, "Hey, do you want to you want to run some other after school activity on Fridays?" I'd done some like you know coding clubs, and I was like, "Yeah, how about a D and D club?" And uh, you know, there was some pushback actually, um, yeah. surprisingly. You know, there was. I, I definitely got the Satanic panic questions. Oh, um, so I explained it's just it's very light on the satan on the Satanism. You know, <laughs> there's yeah. almost
2: no summoning of, summoning of demons.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, one go yeah. to semester. Right, right, exactly. Just <laughs> one go. We limit ourselves now. Um, I do have the girls draw like pentagrams and things on the whiteboards occasionally and just leave them around. <laughs> just, for, just to, you know, let people keep them guessing. Um, sure, keep
2: them on their toes. Um,
0: yep. So, yeah, so we, you know, I started that. I uh, started that with six girls. And, you know, I was actually, um, I mean, we can we can press pause on on this particular part of the story because it sort of connects back up to how I got back into role playing.
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. What is your background in role-playing? And then how did you uh, come to be aware of Appendix N as a concept? Sure. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I started
0: playing Moldvay um, Basic back in the probably around 79, 80. And um, yeah, I got it for, I'm going to guess that I got it for Christmas. My parents got it for me. I, I'm not sure if I asked for it or how it ended up under the tree. Um, did Gary Gygax come down the chimney in central Wisconsin? And (laughs) it's very, very probable. Um, so I, you know, this was like, I just mentioned, it's, you know, I was living in rural Wisconsin and, you know, six months of winter is a good way to get into role-playing games. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. we, uh, you know, that's how I started off and it was a small community. There were not a lot of other, um, nerdy folks. You kind of tend to stick together. So I, I played a lot of, um, basic, I got the monster manual, I got the dungeon master's guide. Um, I had a a friend of mine, Sammy, who had the player's handbook, you know, like we couldn't all afford all the books, right? So (laughs) collectively you have a full set and that's, that's how I, that's how I discovered the appendix N and, you know, I remember, um, looking at the appendix and actually, to be honest, I I actually think the Moldvay basic has maybe even a superior list of, um, of fantasy inspiration works, but perhaps lesser known.
2: Um, I'd love to hear why you find that the superior list.
0: Um, I, I just feel like it's, uh, I, I, should probably go back and look at it and see if it lives up to, to my expectations and my memory, but it's a, uh, it's a longer list and mm-hmm. it includes, if I remember correctly, I think it has like Lloyd Alexander on it. And some other it stuff does. That. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just some of the books that I was reading at the time and that were really inspirational to me and that I've always felt were a big, uh, kind of a, a, a missing piece of the, uh, formal appendix. N.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I do so. think, yeah, the appendix and the formal appendix and, almost relies on having a little bit of background as a fantasy reader already. Whereas the mold. list is a good entry point for people who might like mid grade precocious, mid grade reader. Totally. Yeah.
2: So it even includes things like Alice in Wonderland and, um, and the Chronicles of Narnia. Right. Which I think are
0: really important to read. Like you, you know, they're, they're so they're very formative fantasy works. Right. um, so I, I mean, I, you know, it, I, I guess I loved that, uh, that list for sure. And I, I loved the appendix N, but I didn't feel the need to like go through and read all the appendix N. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of something that I've, and and I, you know, this is why this is a great podcast, right? It, this is an inspirational um, podcast to go back and actually revisit a lot of those works. So, mm-hmm. and I was, you know, this was also the early eighties, which was sort of the heyday of, I think a lot of fantasy fiction for me. Um, I was reading things like, I don't know, Dragon Riders of Pern, probably, and which is science fantasy, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like uh, Robert Aspirin, Thieves' World, mm-hmm. which I think mm-hmm. was, you could make a case that that's actually one of the earliest kind of derivative uh, pieces that was probably directly inspired by the rise of role playing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that anthology, but. Yep, yep. And they had that Chaosium box set that came out long afterwards. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. that was amazing. And yeah, and and it was so amazing. Like- to this day, like that Thieves' World cover is just like. I, I'm not sure if I I loved the book more or if I just love that cover more of those guys okay. sitting around the table. Right, right. Like, with the dagger sticking to the table. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think right. one guy has like a pentag- pentagram on his head or something. Yeah. I, like, yeah. there's some stuff going on. Um, and then I was also really into things like uh, the Border Town series. I don't know if you guys ever read that. It was mm-hmm. edited by uh, Terry Windling. All right. That was sort of a proto Shadowrun before
1: there was Shadowrun.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's I I man, I'll tell you like probably one of my favorite teen series, young adult series uh in in the fantasy genre because it, it's urban, yeah, it's urban fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. And Um, and it actually kind of connects up with Amber because it takes place in this world where there is both technology and and fantasy and they bleed into each other. So, Mm -hmm. but I, I dropped out of role-playing for, uh, kind of like after college, I, um, I ended up eventually moving overseas for 12 years and just did not role-play at all during that time. That was my, you know, to use an Amber metaphor, that was my amnesiac period.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) I mean, that seems
1: uh, to be a pretty common narrative with a lot of our guests. And so what brought you back?
0: Uh, well, you know, I, I moved back to the States, uh, took a job here in Seattle with a software firm. And, um, one of my friends there wanted to get me into playing D and D again. And so, um, he made the mistake of, and I, you know, I'm not dissing fourth edition, but he gave me fourth edition and I was coming off of, you know, I'm like, yeah, let's play D and D. And I'm like, you know, I got my monster manual and I got my DMs guide and, <laughs> and then he hands me four E, and I'm like, wait, what's this? <laughs> And it just didn't stick. It didn't, it didn't work for me. Yeah. Um, I, I, but it kind of rekindled the fire a little bit. And then uh, a buddy of mine, Trevor was really into DCC and he was like, Hey, you want to, you want to try this game? It's not, you know, it's D- DCC. It's this old school OSR. I was like, Whoa, Whoa, what, What? And I've uh,
1: been playing <laughs> DCC pretty heavily ever since. Um, that was it. And so you mentioned that the, some of the girls at, in the club actually play DCC as well. And so other than that, it's mostly fifth edition or, is it, or are they now open to all sorts of role playing through through the you know formation of the club?
0: So I ran the first six girls in my club. Um, I was playing a lot of DCC at the time, but I made the conscious decision that we were going to play D&D because I, I also felt like it was really important for girls in role playing games to have a sense of ownership of, of the hobby. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I want them to be able to walk into, I mean, it's crazy. You can walk into Barnes and Noble now and you can see DD on the shelves, right? These enormous shelves. Um, I wanted them to be able to walk in and say like, hey, you know, that's my that's my jam. That's my game. I speak that language. Um, but I made a lot of modifications. So we ran DD with like zero level characters. And and I basically, you know, I drew a lot of stuff from from DCC. It was not a funnel like they, could, they, had, they each had one character. And there was no character death because I, I think that's important with middle schoolers. But um, we, we ran them through like zero level. They were commoners and they loved it. Like they, and they did like a dungeon crawl. Um, and still to this day, like those original six girls, they call themselves the OGs, the original gamers. <laughs> that, that crew really loves kind of old school style play um, almost more than any, any of the other girls in the club.
2: So, that's amazing.
0: Yeah. And, and since that time I've circled back and with mostly that group, I have since run what I call the master class in role-playing games, and I introduced them to DCC formally. Mm-hmm. And uh, we played like Doom of the Savage Kings. Nice. Nice. Yeah.
2: That's really cool. Yeah. So let's, we can go ahead and start pivoting this conversation towards Roger Zelazny's The Guns of Avalon. So I guess we can start with uh, which version of the book that we are working with so uh mr schoonover what are you working with today (laughs)
0: so i actually have been um collecting i think i think uh you might be part partly to blame for this i saw you actually at gen con for the first time and there was this Uh enormous like these racks of appendix n books there and i'm sure i picked up at least one uh guns of animal evalon there um but uh, i have three editions i've got Four, if you count the audiobook I have the um from the from 1974 I've got the Avon edition which it has a Kenbar cover um, kind of a generic you know fantasy monsters attacking some dudes in armor um, I also have the 80s uh, orbit edition with the uh, Michael Emden cover which is sort of a Arthurian, you know like a guy on horseback raising a sword to the sky but my favorite out of all three volumes that I have has got to be the least accurate in terms of its relationship to the the book itself and that's the chronicles of amber volume one which is both nine princes and guns of avalon together 1979 nelson doubleday boris vallejo cover um heavily oiled muscular man on on the cover blue jeans greaves and then the two cats the hellcat
1: (laughs) (laughs) and the tiniest sword you've ever seen
2: (laughs) that's amazing
1: i did i I think read that one but it's the the original uh Way I read it back in the day because yeah. I think that was the science fiction book club edition, so that was pretty common on the book show, at the library. Yeah, and yeah. stuff like. That. Yeah.
2: Uh, and Hoy, which one are you working with uh, today? I have the
1: uh, Avon 1974 printing, I believe, or maybe it's 79 with the Ron Walotsky cover. The only fault with these is that the design is great, the typography, but that actually makes the art kind of small. But but, right. but as a but as a piece, it's great, and it's a little it's a little. Um, funky prog rock album cover kind of looking to me um so (laughs) that's the feeling i got there and so i see you have the same one there jeff
2: yes i am working with the same version you are the 1974 ron Wolotsky avon book edition um i i really like it i mean the whole i feel like this is the really iconic design for the amber books Mm -hmm. and also i just kind of think it's cool that we've got these like flying death ladies and this like kind of mountain goat man and there's like a sphere within a sphere which kind of makes it look like an eyeball so i don't there's there's some cool stuff going on that i'm really just kind of vibing with Mm -hmm.
1: i should have to say one more thing because my copy is a decommissioned one from cleveland library which i thought was your cleveland jeff but turns out it's cleveland in north carolina but inside (laughs) here it says Donated by Edward McKay to Cleveland Library. So wherever you are, Edward McKay, thank you very much.
2: (laughs) Thank you for your donations. All right. So now we can move on over to our Hygaxian word of the day. Bard. Bard. And Bard is found on page 27. And on page 27, um, we have, yes, I replied. There is a verse I heard long ago from a passing bard, and a bard is a poet, traditionally one reciting epics and associated with a particular oral tradition. So obviously, bard is a word that is used in Dungeons and Dragons, Uh, not quite in the way that it is used in uh, the dictionary, but uh, it's, it's a word that I think definitely inspired Gygax in his design. Uh, I'm curious, Ethan, do you have anything you would like to contribute to our high word of the day section um yeah i you know i
0: I took some notes um brutally in the back of this book here as I was reading, and the only i <clears throat> so i the i guess the word that popped out to me right away was lucency, which on hmm. my edition is um chapter yeah it's in chapter nine here um says, the, the trees and shrubs had a moist lucency to their foliage. The mm-hmm. air was sweet and clean. And um, lucency, lu- you know, lucent is sort of, you know, the light or giving off light. And I thought it was a kind of a beautiful kind of Hugaxian word.
2: It and, is. Actually, that's a word that was, uh, I actually have a list of the words we've used previously. Oh, really? And that's, that was uh, the, our word of the day. Not lucency, but lucent was our yeah, word for a giant of world's end oh,
1: there you go. well there you go so three. i mean I, th- I think it's a very apropos word because i think Zelazny, throughout this book he talks a lot about the quality of light yeah um especially as they're changing worlds as he's as you know corwin and company are moving through the various worlds and the light changes and, and that's how you know where you're in a different place and um the later um in fact the later um printings of the um amber books had this sort of um i think it might have been tim kirk but the the artwork had kind of aped um who am i thinking of the famous uh he did all the sort of uh sun uh dawn uh, sort of the mid-20s illustrator um the name forget, uh, completely escapes me i was talking about him yesterday but again that sort of lucency that mid-20s mid-1920s high illustration commercial illustration kind of look to that um are you thinking of
0: like the uh, covers of some of like the amazing stories and uh, those, the pulps or.
1: Oh, was, um, he, uh, he, uh, I who
0: will remember like, like...
1: As soon as the podcast is over, he was like a commercial artist, <laughs> like, you know, a fine artist That's later right. on. Going, you know, in notes, right? going, podcast, going in the notes, right? Going in the notes. Going in the notes.
2: Well, and I think this might be a good um, segue into the library because yeah. one of the things we were chatting about in our patron book club before this was how accessible the language is in this yeah. book. You know, a lot of the titles and authors that are in the Appendix N tend to be pretty verbose. And you can tell that the authors definitely enjoyed uh, sipping on a glass of red wine by the fireplace while flipping through the uh, Oxford OED. Uh, but this this language is very much like, you know, Hey man, I'm like a I'm a hip guy from nineteen seventy two and I'm here in this fantasy land kind of telling you what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> um I don't know. What what did you guys think of the language?
1: Yeah, it's definitely a little bit of that's like, yeah, he just says, or like um he doesn't say like I grok it uh, at least, but <laughs> you know <that's... laughs> by the way, yeah, I, just I, was... Just,
0: I was really struck at how um like contrasting with something like Vance, right? Like mm-hmm. this is not there's no Thesaurus required. For this book, and it it definitely, I you know I I first read the entire Amber series when I was like the whole thing uh, when I was stranded one summer in Montana when I was about sixteen, and I remember loving it then, just like absolutely loving it. Although this is that's actually uh, we should I should mention that's not actually how I came to um, to Zelazny in the first place, but um, that period like it's really targeted perfectly at that demographic right like mm-hmm. the teenage years you know it's that reading level a comprehension level no problem now i read it and i you know i would maybe because i was consciously thinking about things like the gaxian word of the day and i was really struck at, at the opportunities for um perhaps some more floral language that he sort of passed by right mm-hmm. especially during those those walks through shadow which are some of the best parts i think of the book but
2: And my impression is that it's uh, an absolutely deliberate choice, too, because I feel like with Jack of Shadows, um, because I haven't read a lot of Zelazny at this point. I've only read Jack of Shadows in the first two Amber books. But I feel like even in Jack of Shadows, which is written in a similar style, but still he uses more florid language in Jack of Shadows than he does here. So I feel like there's very much a decision to make the language very much just like how the average person might kind of speak or think. It's not mm-hmm. really about having this kind of omnipotent narr- narrator who's telling you what's going on. You know, it, it's it's first person, but you're like really present in kind of the experience of the person who's telling you the story. Mm-hmm.
1: And that makes sense. I think Jack of Shadows was very specifically a response to Jack Vance's Dying Earth books, whereas mm-hmm. this is its own thing. Um, and I also get the impression, I think I'm re- I remember reading this somewhere, that, uh, and I don't know if this was his universal writing style, but that sometimes he would do stuff more or less in a single draft. And I feel like this book was that way. Um, there are, as as you mentioned, Jeff, like paragraphs that are like a page and a half
2: long. Um, these well, I mentioned that in the patron book club. You I, patron we book, did mention yeah. it on this episode. Right. Uh, but, but yeah, there, there are sections where there's like three to five pages of my copy of the book would be a single paragraph. Right, right.
1: And then Ethan, you mentioned the sentence fragments in the sort of traipsing through the the, the various yeah. other worlds. Each individual fragment, is gorgeous but i'm not sure how much he thought there, there's, there's some sort of free associative as opposed to him saying like oh let me put this fragment next to this fragment like to the next to this fragment
0: yeah this so. this whole book feels like uh um like he had a bunch of loose ends laying around in a drawer and tied them up and and slapped a cover on in some ways you know there's <laughs> there's a lot of moments where like in the beginning um when he says oh by the way you know my name my sword's name is Grace swan Deer.
1: Right, and
0: right, right. I, maybe I'll tell you about. It. I know I haven't mentioned it before. Funnily right. enough,
2: right? Like, he literally says that, right? Like, oh, All I right. know I
0: haven't told you about this, as though we're having, as though he's sitting, you know, having a conversation with us. Right, right, right. Um, and he he also moves in and out of that mode of sort of like having breaking the fourth wall with the reader, talking to the reader directly, and right. um, and then just sort of narrating it in first person. Right. But he, uh, you know, he says, I, "I I'll I'll come back to that if I remember to do it." He doesn't remember right. to do it. Right, right, right. So you're uh, like the whole book. I was sitting there waiting. Like, yo, oh, I don't remember him mentioning that. Nope. Sure enough, he doesn't go back into it at all. Maybe he does in a future book, and I don't remember it. But right, right.
2: Now, have you have you reread the Amber books as an adult?
0: Uh, myself, no. So I, um, this is the my rereading. I've read I reread Nine Princes in Amber prior okay. to Guns of Avalon uh, for this podcast, and then I read Guns of Avalon. Mm-hmm. Gotcha.
2: And you've not gone beyond that. Since. I have not
0: gone beyond that. I, yeah. And I'll tell you what, like, you know, my feeling is if you're going to jump into this series, like, yeah, read, you know, read Nine Princes and Amber. I'm a little more on the fence about whether or not this is a must read.
1: Yeah. Right. Mm. I mean, fair, I, think this, I think this is a, uh, I mean, Without going into major spoilers, this is clearly a middle book in a series, right? And so time will tell, I think, once as we get into the farther books. If if it was just these two books, I might be just like, okay, Nine Princes of Amber, that's fine. But since we don't know how it's going to wrap up, then this book may take further importance, you know, yeah. as we finish. The I'll, I'll probably go back and read the rest of them. All right, right. Um, so speaking of like bits in the drawer, the artist I was thinking of was Maxfield Parrish. So, oh, yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: And in fact, on the, um, the, I have actually one more, I do have another volume, which is that giant, like, you know, omnibus version of, right. uh, oh
2: yeah, yeah I have Forever, that as well, which
0: has all the Merlin books in it as well, I think. Right, right. And, um, that one either has a Maxfield Parrish painting on the cover or like something He's which Parish blue. It's definitely, Max. It's definitely Parrish blue. Right? Yeah. So that's, that's. So, yes, that's what I was thinking of. So there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's such a good reference actually because I mean, you know, that's that's a- Amber is that kind of Max that Maxfield Parish perfection, right?
1: Right, right. Everything is just like hyper real, right? Because it's the only real thing and everything else in the universe is a poor reflection of it. Right? It's so just a good.
2: shadow of Amber. Yeah, so when, are, can we talk
0: about that a little bit? Can we talk about some of the ideas in this book? Um, sure, or, when, when are we going to? When, when is the best time to talk about what we liked and don't like?
2: By the way, right now. Right
0: now. <laughs> okay. This
2: is this is the moment.
0: <laughs> Boy, do I have thoughts and feelings about this book. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I just, you know, I have to get this out of the way and say, like, like the whole both Nine Princes and Amber. And Guns of Avalon are sort of a study in toxic masculinity, (laughs) like to use modern terminology, right? Uh Like, you know, the male characters suppress their emotions. They don't like they don't apologize to each other. They avoid having like Corwin actually says at one point, like um, I think he's talking about Blaze in the the first book. But he's like, you know, I, I didn't make him say he was sorry because I knew what that would cost him. (laughs)
2: i mean thank god
0: he didn't have to say i'm sorry right right? or express contrition right right Um, and of course you know women are either inconsequential or in this book we see like they're either inconsequential or like um kind of malevolent seductresses Mm -hmm. right and there's there's really like only two that's the only two real modes of of uh, having you know female characters for Zelazny so far, and also the fact that entire civilizations
1: are like colonized and then sacrificed in mass. <laughs> right, right. So I wonder whether this is. Um, I think Zelazny himself shows more self-awareness. So th- I don't think this is uh, obliviousness on his right. part. Right, right, right. This I think is he's actually, doing a lot of it intentionally. Right, it's like some commentary here. Like there is like Corwin like making a comment at one point like. Oh, you know, I had amnesia for 700 years and I went to all the greatest scholars on earth. and I still ended up being like who I was before. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? right. Although he still had, but now he has glimmerings of guilt, right. And responsibility, right. Like, um, Lorraine, the woman who, you know, meets a, a terrible fate. She yeah. is actually a pretty good character. I think, I mean, she is, she represents what happens when these things are going around that are forces that are bigger than us and we just get trampled underfoot and then she's trying to re- retain her humanity. And he, re- he realizes that, but he still can't help her in any meaningful way. Right. And he, regrets. Yeah, she, it.
0: and she's the personification of consequence. Right. Um, fa- that falls out of his curse.
1: Right. 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 Um, you know, and Dara, Dara plays into like the whole, um, his, his, macho self-image, like, oh, this is a very desirable teenage girl. And, you know, she knows how to fight, but she's not. She's very good, but she's not better than me. Right. <laughs> you know, right. And she's kind yeah. of sassy, you know, but. Yeah.
2: And also, I is, this is something we were talking about uh, beforehand, too. But like, it's it's this idea of like, you know, how in early Hollywood, there is this like tired trope of like the attractive, um, maybe man in his 30s or 40s who comes back home and then that mousy little girl who yeah. was like who lived down the road, who we never bothered looking at because she was so tomboyish, is now just blossoming into her beauty. And as soon as they meet, they both fall madly in love with each other. And and this like 17-year-old can't help but like give herself to this 45-year-old man. <laughs> uh and we kind of had that happening here in uh in The Guns of Avalon, but I also think it's really fun how Zelazny flips that on us. Yeah by turning her into the real kind of secret supervillain of the story. Totally. And yes, it ends up becoming a, a, a case of her being the kind of dangerous seductress. But I think it's fun that he he breaks one trope by bringing in another.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And no, no, I, I was, I mean, that was for sure, like I was um, applauding when I figured out like what Dara was up to, right? Yeah. Hey, like, okay, this is good. You know, right, and you right. get an inkling of that too. Like, and she's, you know, um she's she can vie with the best of them right like you know she kills the the uh whatever the um the household help right
2: right right yeah makes a little shallow grave for them i also love the bit of foreshadowing foreshadowing we got too though when like he first meets dara and he's kind of explaining to her what it means to be of the royal blood and he says to her never trust a relative it is far worse than trusting strangers. Yeah. What's brilliant is he's the one who ends up trusting her and completely gets like, you know...
0: <laughs> Isn't that the definition of like a confidence game, right? Like she's actually, she's not getting his confidence, she's giving confidence. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's really
1: what suckers his, him in. Right. Yeah,
2: it's it's great. It's really, it's really beautifully executed. Right. Yeah.
1: Given that this book is relatively accessible... If like one of the the girls in your d and d club was like a really strong and precocious reader is this something that you would say maybe it's worth taking a look at or is this just some too far afield? or is it-
0: i you know i wouldn't i wouldn't steer her away from it there's there's certainly like i actually have a, a spreadsheet of like um young adult fiction with strong female protagonists fantasy fiction specifically to hand out to them mm-hmm. um so I'd probably like work my way through. Many dozens of books before I would like hand this over. I think if they were older, I would feel more comfortable giving this to them because and with the the caveat of you know, let's talk about these characters and and sort of how they're presenting, and then maybe following it up with a discussion just because there is an awful lot in here. um I love the ideas in this book. The ideas are great, right? like the idea of of the the infinite universes, the infinite infinite worlds mm-hmm. um. And which actually I think doesn't get explored enough, if anything, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I might, if they were going to be doing some world building, I would, I would definitely consider recommending the series.
2: Mm I would be curious to know on this spreadsheet you have, what, what are you recommending that's from this era? That's from 1980 and before.
0: There is a a Well, there are a few books from this era. Um, There are definitely more from the Mm nineties.
2: Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, the the way that we treat women in fiction has changed so much, and that's yeah. why I was kind of curious if you had any suggestions of appendix and era literature where we've got female protagonists that you feel comfortable recommending to a young woman today.
0: Yeah, there's very there is precious
1: little.
2: Yeah, uh, it's very true.
0: Yeah, even Narnia,
1: like the girls in you know the female characters in Narnia get short shrift a little bit. Right. Um, I mean, maybe yep. maybe. Eilonwy in the Terran Wanderer books. I mean, but she's not the viewpoint character, but she's at least a very strong character in her yep. right.
0: So. Yep. I, she definitely. And so my my criteria was just female protagonists, and so mm-hmm. she does. It doesn't quite qualify, but it's a strong second. I have like a second spreadsheet for those. Uh, right. Um, I'm happy to share that over. Actually, maybe we can drop that in the show uh, notes. or something.
2: Yeah. That's I'd love to see guys. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. Now we were talking about the the multiple infinite worlds, and one of the things that I was thinking about. Is how at one point Corwin is talking about how literally any world that you can imagine exists, and he can use the shadows to, 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 to get there. But then there are also moments where he talks about how the curse that he used has affected every world in existence. Right. Or he's talking about how there's this like, you know, Game of Thrones that they're playing, where um, you know, they're all battling viciously for the for for the for the for the throne. And he says, that this exists in all worlds because all worlds are shadows of amber. Now, if both of these statements are true, that literally any world you can imagine exists, and this is true in all worlds, I would say I'm capable of imagining a world where people are not battling for a throne. So,
0: <laughs>
2: I'm, I'm what, nodding vigorously. <laughs> uh, so do you think that, he's being hyperbolic. Do you think that that's Roger Zelazny's lack of imagination? Is this Corwin or is this Zelazny that we're kind of learning more about by juxtaposing those two statements? Hoy, I feel like you should take this first.
1: I think it's Corwin. Um, okay. I think that Zelazny, um, again, I haven't read a lot of Zelazny, but I do know that Zelazny is versed in, at least in the layman's sense, in a number of other uh, mythologies and spiritualities like hinduism egyptian mythology maybe even buddhism um and so that he is capable of encompassing more viewpoints and that corwin himself is this flawed character that is sort of self-justifying the fact that he wants to go for the throne of amber by saying well i'm better than these other guys but even he knows that like again after 700 years he didn't improve that much <laughs> you know so that's my take on it um You know, I mean, again, still is a lousy, still writing in the frame of the early 1970s. So there's still room for more progress. But I think that's what, that's where I I land on this one. Back to you, Ethan.
0: (laughs) I feel like this is a major shortcoming in the book. It really, this pulls me out of the book so many times because I end up just sort of, again, like, um, uh, clenching my fists and just thinking, you know, like, why? But wait, we're in an infinite multiverse, And he never really lays out the rules very effectively. I feel like he had a great idea and got really creative about it. And now is just sort of like jazzily riffing off that initial really strong idea, that strong insight, Hmm. um, or that, um, that strong inspiration that he had from maybe some other works, obviously. And, you know, I don't, I feel like he, I, I sensed a little bit of laziness in that exploration, Um, so I, am going to put that on Zelazny's shoulders maybe, but, and I'd love to be wrong about that. Maybe it was a conscious choice to not explore it, but I, I feel like there were so many, um, question marks for me that were, you know, left around what, what are really the rules of the multiverse that Mm. these characters live in? What was around before Amber was founded? You know, what, um, what experiences have they had and actually even going into the experiences like there it's also hinted at several times that there are shadow versions of themselves themselves right there are other Corwin's like the Corwin you knew is not really me and things like this and I just feel like it is he just does not dig into the ramifications of that right and it it, and it maybe you know when I was 16 that did not bother me I was like this is just a page turner you know but now it's I feel like we have enough sophisticated fiction um, both in terms of written fiction and television and, and what have you that he, it, it does the reader a disservice to not dig into that a little bit more.
1: Yeah. I think it's almost a requirement these days, but maybe it's a little bit oppressive to have like a, a story Bible, a world Bible for whether it's a gaming property, whether it's a, 13-episode television series, whether it's an epic fantasy series. You know, George R.R. R. R. Martin obviously is famous for that. I mean, and this coming from Tolkien and a couple other people. It's like, oh, we have to work out everything about this world before we go on there. Yeah. Obviously, it's not I possible mean, it's, with Amber because it's infinite universes, but what are the ground rules, like you say? So,
0: Yeah. I, there, there was a moment where he actually... This was in um, the beginning of Chapter 6, and I made a note of it because... I actually made my piece with sort of his sloppiness around the multiverse at one point, because I, in the beginning of chapter six, he says, um, let me see if I can, I can open up to that. But, uh, he says steady movement is more important than speed. Much of the time. So long as there is a regular progression of stimuli to get your mental hooks into, there is room for lateral movement. Once this begins, its rate is a matter of discretion. And I, I read that actually, he's talking about obviously shifting through shadow and sort of like the, the, that, um, Imagine the cadence of imagination that he has to maintain in order to, to move through to progress through shadow. But I, I realized at that moment that it's also kind of a good metaphor for his writing style. Yeah, right. And, yeah. and if you read it as if you read Shifting Through Shadow as um, the act of writing, then I, you know, then the whole thing becomes sort of a metaphor for Zelazny's writing process mm-hmm. um, and his relationship with us as the reader. Uh, which again, he hints at so many times. So, you know, making looking at it more as a metaphor for his writing um, and the act of writing and the act of narration, the act of imagination. Fine, then I can right. I can allow him his sloppiness. Right, right.
2: Now, if you're going to try to play a game uh, where you have characters who have these kinds of potentially ill-defined and somewhat limitless powers. Um, I guess I'll, I'll I'll start by asking: Do you have any experience playing a game where you where your main characters are so kind of or are, are, are essentially kind of demigod level? Yeah, that's just what I said. Actually, with GURPS,
1: obviously it's very grounded, although obviously it scales, but it doesn't actually scale as well as something that's a little bit more like quadratic, like you know, Marvel superheroes or something like that. Um, yeah. So, not in recent games um at the very beginning of my ad and d career you know we always you, know, you want to try out all the tools in the box like oh i got a 30th level ranger it's like well that's nothing i've got a 40th level magic user right so we did that um but um and jeff you've seen it me at my games that, that my tendency is to be a little bit more grounded so yeah yeah I don't have my, yeah um so I, and i never played um i'd already stopped playing D D by the time like the Companion, Masters, Immortals set, you know, the Beckme progression to come out. So uh, certainly not in the D&D universe. You know, Champions, uh, I played a lot of Champions, and Champions scales quite well for that, so certain games might have gotten close to that, but nef- definitely not truly cosmic. So mm-hmm. um, so that's where, yeah, that's where I've been at. I know there is an Amber role-playing game, which I've never played, so I don't know how well that models this kind of scope of, sca- of power, but there you go. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't played you know,
0: godlike characters. I I find it uninteresting and unappealing largely Mm -hmm. um, the idea of infinite power. But I guess what's interesting about nine princes in Amber is even though they are, and again, this is one of those areas that I wish he would explore more. Like we have um, Benedict who is sort of like a a Mars or Aries like archetype. And Mm -hmm. he never really digs into whether or not the princes are sort of like the art, you know, are are really like godlike archetypes and responsible Mm -hmm. for the, the godlike mythologies that we see in the world. Um, but despite that fact, despite that they are infinitely powerful in some regards, there is a like an incredible sense of like fragility and mortality around them. like we see horrific wounds and mm. they can come back from them, but it's hard, and right. you know Benedict has his arm chopped off, so there is that sense of them as maybe less than than godlike in their kind of day to day capabilities. Um, and I can see them being just sort of like high level characters and even Corwin, right? The way he's, he presents as such a, maybe it's the language as well. Maybe good. this yeah. goes back to that use of very simple language, but he comes off as sort of an everyman in many ways, yeah. right? Right. Right. Just some schlub out, right. you know, wandering through shadow.
1: Do we think the Amber Lords of Amber are more powerful than say the, uh, the Lords in the, uh, world of tears series or uh, the Philip Jose farmer characters in a sense, because they are able to create their own, you know, not infinite multiverses, but they can actually create universes as opposed to just travel between universes, right?
2: Well, they could, but yeah. the ones that are existing now are just kind of using leftover technology. So I would right. say that the, the, the princes in this story are actually far more powerful right, right. than... than, than the, the, because the people in the world of tears, they're just kind of playing with leftover technology they don't fully understand anymore.
1: Right, right. Right. Um, and, and you brought up something interesting, also with Benedict as being this archetype of 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 war. Although it's not irrational, it's not it's not flailing out, right? Benedict is very rational. He is he is um, an upholder of the status quo, right? He does he he is he's fond of Corwin, but only to the extent that if Corwin is not going to cause Amber's to self destruct, right? He he's yeah. fine with keeping Eric, you know, Corwin's sworn nemesis as the sort of regent in Amber, if. That's better for Amber itself. And I like that Corwin himself is actually knows that in a straight fight, he cannot beat Benedict. Like when Benedict is pursuing him, that's actually, you know, through the various shadows. That's definitely a moment of high tension. And when he's in the battle, he's only able to defeat Benedict because he knows something about that specific spot that he's fighting in that Benedict doesn't know, you know, and with trickery.
2: And that was a beautifully written battle scene too. Usually, if yeah. if it's a if it's a multi-page battle scene, my attention starts to kind of drift and wander. It did it for a moment with that battle scene. I thought that was really fantastic. Uh, one thing I would like to um, now pivot away from is, you know, instead of maybe talking about the idea of playing kind of demigod level characters, another aspect that we have going on here is that essentially all of our main characters have their own motivations and are kind of playing against each other. Uh, so do you guys have any experience where, any experience in gaming where all of the players are kind of secretive and antagonistic? Do you guys have any kind of gaming experience with that at all? Uh,
1: again, again, for me, that's not my preference. And, yeah. and I know that certain games are, are more optimized for that and so that there's less hard feelings if you, you know, I mean, certain like Fiasco and certain in various mm-hmm. story games are optimized so that in a straight D&D game, you know, I've always hated like like where the thief is I pick the pocket of the paladin, you know, and, and yeah. kind of I've I've <laughs> always hated that. Um I don't you know, I mean if there's like you know, if you get hit by the whammy and someone puts a charm spell on you, that's fine. That's in the game, that's in the narrative. But not not the oh, that's what my character would do. It's like, well no, your character would want to survive and the best survival chance of survival is for the whole party to survive. You know, so <laughs> right. And everyone to, you know, play their role in that regard. So So
0: just to this is this is not a, a segue at all. It's not a tangent. It's actually, I think, directly related. But are you familiar with um Zelazny's uh educational background? Like he did a he did a master's thesis that I'm thinking of. No. No, oh, no. He wrote his master's thesis on um this uh Jacobian, like Shakespearean play called Revengers Tragedy. Okay which I, I had never heard of. I was digging around in his biography um for this podcast and I, I came across that. And it, it is worth looking up. There's actually, there's a Wikipedia entry for it, but it, it is basically the story of like this Italian family of nobles that is constantly scheming and plotting to like kill each wow. other. And it is like <laughs> when, it, once I realized that he had written a master's thesis about this, I was like, this is nine princes in Amber. This is where it comes from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually, great. I, saw, I have the ebook of revenges tragedy. Um, right you know, in the original kind of like Shakespearean English. So it's, right. it's, it's a bit, you know, teethy to get through. Um, yeah, sure. But it's worth
1: looking into as a sort of a source material for Nine Princes. Right, right. Yeah, certainly once you get to a Jacobean, yeah, like I've true. read the, like the Duchess of Malfi. Yeah, right. you can see like that the Duchess of Malfi is like probably far more barbaric than like any Conan book I've ever read in terms of like <laughs> what's going on in there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know, That, that does not appeal to me like
0: that, that kind of court intrigue role-playing does not appeal Mm -hmm. to me, um, maybe as a play, but not as role-playing. But I, I think in terms of the role-playing aspects here, you, you have like some cool mini games for sure. That would be fun. Like the kind of the moving through shadow where it becomes this, this kind of mastermind like progression of like slowly adding and subtracting different, you know, aspects of the world and. I would love to add that into a game, mm-hmm.
2: and then kind of practically speaking, you know, kind of tying this back to something Hoy was saying earlier about how he hates it when you know you've got the thief who's trying to pickpocket the paladin, yeah. and kind of tying that into antagonistic play. You know, you are running games for young people, and I know that from my experience, young people are more likely to play in that style. So, and there's kind of that whole idea of like you know in dungeons and dragons for the most part you have an adventuring party in your opinion is it up to the players to come up with a reason for why their characters are staying together or is the onus for that more on the dungeon master side
0: <laughs> okay i have a really strong opinion about this so one of the i only have like a couple of rules for the club at the beginning of club one of them is no evil characters okay um, because it, it's you know For sure. Middle schoolers, like the first thing they ask is like, can I play an evil character? (laughs) They don't don't actually mean evil. They usually mean like chaotic. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, oh, now we'll talk about the difference between like chaos and, and law and order. I'm like, chaos (laughs) is fine, but no, no true evilness. And, um, I also say like, you can't, there's no PVP, uh, no player versus player. And, um, so no pickpocketing the paladin and, you have to go on the adventure and you have to come up with a reason that you're, you can have a stick in the mud character as long as your stick in the mud character decides to go on the adventure. And that can be like a big part of their backstory. Like, why is it that they're a baker in the town and they're leaving behind their bakery and they're going on this adventure? You come up with a reason. So yeah. that is like a really explicit thing I make them do.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Great. I, I, I do that. enforce it. Yeah. Right. And, and fifth edition allows for that, right? Because of the backgrounds and all that, which is, you know, not as explicit in, say, early D&D, first edition D&D. And yeah.
0: Like Although the, the backgrounds are almost, they're so heroic in 5e. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you like literally you have backgrounds like folk hero. Uh, <laughs> I, that's one of the reasons why I actually prefer the DCC style right, uh, kind of. The backgrounds. <laughs> because They love it. They've embraced it. They're like, yeah, I've got a glassblower. like she had a big metal tube and that's now her weapon you know right right
2: (laughs) No, it's really impressive the kind of creative things that people especially young people who've never done something like uh who's never played a game like this before the creative uses they can come up with uh using like a background as a turnip farmer you know they're like oh well you know as a turnip farmer i'm sure that i've done this thing and clearly it ties into this thing we're doing here so yeah
0: yeah, no, I, I they they love it. There's no shortage of creativity. It doesn't hinder them in any way, and it does not reduce the fun. And if anything, I think it increases. It is it is much more that Lloyd Alexander, going back to Moldavay Basics list, right? right. That Lloyd Alexander, your um, keeper. You're, you're yeah, you're an assistant right. keeper. Not even the main <laughs> keeper.
1: Oh,
2: yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> so now with uh, tying this into the appendix end specifically, you know, we're not reading this because Gary Gygax said, hey, just go check out Roger Zelazny. He's cool. Gary Gygax specifically said, "Read the Amber series." Yeah. So, why do you think the Amber series is a specific recommendation as both a source of inspiration for the game and something that, that is recommended for us to read to inspire our gaming?
1: Hoi, do you want to tackle this first before I jump in? Um, well, certainly, multiplaner. Uh, I mean, it's not as codified as like you know the sort of square that Gary Gygax came up with, you know, with all over here is Elysium and over here is you know the happy hunting grounds but multiplayer travel um how it could be depicted it's not just simply like oh i step through a closet like in narnia right and i'm in another world this is like this is something that has costs and consequences and it's not just like i just want to do it and it happens um maybe an end game of high level play I think also a lot of the other ones are a little bit more grounded, even as powerful as Conan is. He's still a little bit more grounded. And this is okay. This is, this is 14th level, 15th level, 20th level play, right? Not, not, uh, you know, 12th level play. So I think those are the two things that would jump out at me as things that, uh, Gygax might take away and say, I want this in AD and D.
0: Yeah. I didn't, I didn't note high level play, but I definitely, I had three things that I thought could be influences. Um, one of them was also the planar travel, obviously. Um, the and I guess kind of as an adjunct to that would be um something that we have seen kind of atrophy in Dungeons and Dragons specifically, but it is still alive in things like DCC, obviously. And that is that um that integration of technology and science fantasy, um mm. you know, the random the random rifle that you find or what have you. Um, which actually I think is probably one of the things that I wish he had explored a little bit more, although uh, the whole point of guns of Avalon, right is the, the extraction of technology from one plane and taking it to another which yeah. um which is great but the i guess one of the things i was really struck by is how there's a real modal quality uh which is particularly a dnd like in the sense that you have um outdoor wargaming and indoor dungeon crawling right so you have like you have these like big set pieces, right? Where he like, especially like in Nine Princes in Amber, this was really evident. Also here, where he he discusses a little bit about like the positions of the troops, and you know, you can almost imagine the sand table. Um, and, and if you, I don't know Zelazny's history of wargaming, if he was a wargamer or not, but there are times where I'm definitely like, oh, this dude totally wargamed, right? Yeah, um, but you, and for sure he was obviously you know a martial artist and and mm-hmm. and. A, you know, fenced and things like that. So you you get that kind of um, scope where he goes from all the way from like giant ship battles all the way down to discussing the footing of somebody as they're engaged in sword play. Um, hmm. I thought that was definitely something that could have influenced um, D&D. And then also um, like Psyonix, I thought it was neat that, you know, Zelazny sort of, um, he, he has a crystal ball and he sort of, uh, you know, described, uh, the internet today, where the mode of communication is also a mode of attack, right?
1: right. So you have <laughs> the trumps,
0: which are this like incredible mode of communication between very intimate mode of communication between the princes, but also it's the the mode of attack and the psionic attack, right, um, right. which we don't see as much of in Guns of Avalon, but it's still obviously it's there, right?
1: Yeah, I mean he's 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 trying to blank out and not be detected in that one scene, so that's right there, yeah. that's mind blank or something like that, you know, from from either the yeah, spell right. or the, like, the psionic power. Um, I was absolutely. struck absolutely how much the Trumps were, as you say, it was almost like a, a FaceTime call, except that you could punch yeah. someone through a FaceTime
0: call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, really, like, to the point of hanging up, right? Like, I right. almost felt like it was too much like that at times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? it, becomes, it becomes, like, almost a, a mundane experience. It's like, yeah,
1: I'm going to call so-and-so on the Trump. Right, right. And then Gerard's just walking down the street. It's like, oh, hey, where you at? You know? Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? But they didn't have any emoji yet. But <laughs>
2: One other thing I would love to chat about briefly is, you know, you know, oftentimes in the appendix end, we have these stories that are just chock full of really fantastic beasts and monsters. And sure, in this book, you know, we've got like the Siamese cat monster, and we've got like some manticores, and we've got like a flying demon thing, um, uh, Stride Galdweer, that guy. Um, but I would say probably 95% of our body count was other people. And I'm curious, are you, let's say somebody proposed and said, Ethan, I want to run a d game, but like, we're not really going to use the monster manual hardly at all. It's almost going to exclusively be humans. We'll still have the same spells and magic items and all of that stuff, but almost everything you're going to be battling and encountering are just going to be other, other humans. And you're only going to play humans. Does that have an appeal or no? So
0: I love low fantasy personally. Okay. Um, Really, really deeply love it. And I, I probably like, I'm down for that on a personal level um, with my middle schoolers. It's exactly the opposite. I never let them (laughs) murder other humans because I don't want them to primarily. I don't want them to go home and tell their parents that they murdered some people in D (laughs) and D &D club. Uh, That was a a shortcut to like having D and D club canceled. Um, Uh So I, yeah, no, no killing things with faces is kind of the general rule. Like in sex, <laughs> and you know, I keep it very abstract in that regard. Um, but I, I, yeah, personally, I love, um, going up against bad guys that are smart and clever and interesting. Um, I'm not as into the cannon fodder aspect that some of this has, I guess, like that body count. Uh, I, I assume you're Jeff, you're including the, um, those short fuzzy guys
1: with a long cane on
2: yes yes because although those technically aren't humans they are like you know his men yeah
1: uh, and he, he stops referring to them as i mean in the first book they did and here he just mentions it briefly but then after that as you said he's just like his squad his men the rifle men. he doesn't even you know he doesn't oh, differentiate yeah. so they're just I'm like sure his, they've
2: got retractable claws and fur but, but they've got trigger he, fingers he, he actually actually point. Point.
0: <laughs> yeah and at one point he actually says like i had no moral qualms this time unlike last time where i had like a little tickle in my conscience this time i was pretty <laughs> much okay with it
2: well yeah and we don't need to go too deep into that but that was also when he realizes that you know he's fallen in love with dara even though um dara is his brother's granddaughter and he's like yeah you know i should feel weird about the fact that we're related but it's distant enough and i'm like dude it is your brother's (laughs) granddaughter that is not distant. it's not
0: like one of those cousins where you are like you know 10 times removed or there's something you have to calculate it
2: nope it's pretty clear yeah You just go straight up the family tree and then left one branch. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. that's uh, you know that's uh, you know the power of being you know in the royal family of Amber, right? And I guess it's not yeah. unprecedented within just various weird intermarriages and in noble families in our history. But <laughs> uh, by the way, also revengeous
0: tragedy, like this kind of stuff seems to be going on all the time in that play. <laughs> so
1: definitely check it out if you have. Right. If you have, yes, you know, time perfect. But yeah,
2: just um, kind of. Oh, sorry.
1: No, no, no. I think I think that um, playing a, that game, maybe D anD D is not the optimal game for that. Although you still have the master villains to be high level characters, but certainly games that are a little more ground like RuneQuest, uh, bringing into my thing GURPS, um, even DCC would allow for that. I think a little bit more with a little bit more um, in terms of scale. D and D, sure. Yeah, you know, which one have that weird monster? So anyway,
2: yeah, and we had this conversation before the show too, and we kind of talked about you know Star Wars and Traveler. So for sci-fi, that stuff kind of makes a little bit more sense. Um, I can also see it making sense in more kind of a superhero capacity too. You know, you're a superhero, you're playing other superheroes, but most of the uh, you're 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 fighting against the superheroes, but their minions are probably humans. Like there are other other kind of uh, standard um role-playing game um genres that explore this kind of thing pretty thoroughly
0: and you know there are there are aspects of of guns of avalon in particular that are very heist like right mm-hmm. like he's kind of putting together sort of putting together crew and right. and you know traveling around and piecing together various stuff from various you know nefarious right. suppliers right. It's a and, bit of yeah, yeah and like you know, I, I immediately, I was like, oh, this is like a gumshoe system game, right? Where you mm, have okay. to like uh, go around and and put together the heist.
2: Wow. Um, oh yeah, cool. I like that.
0: So yeah, definitely different aspects of this game would fit different systems very well, uh, of this book, I should say, would fit uh, different systems very well. But I don't okay. think there's any one system that covers it all.
2: And what I love is because clearly, you know, you're you're a fan of the show, you're a listener of it. And like you listen, so I, I love that you kind of research all of the questions we usually ask and I love that for some reason we actually didn't end up asking you most of those questions, but like you still managed to work them in. I think it's I think it's great. <laughs> I feel like that's no, it's my fault for like no, I'm it's like, amazing.
0: Oh, I'm going to get us off track now a little bit, but I no, know. I love
2: it. I love it. I feel like you're you're somebody who like has done their homework and you're clearly like yeah, it's 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 very cool. So so right. thank you.
0: Each kind the show and all listeners should become uh, Patreon supporters. That's my right. plug.
2: Uh, well, thank, thank you very you much. Time. I appreciate that. So now before we wrap this episode up, was there kind of any last thing that you really wanted to chat about that we didn't really get an opportunity to get to?
0: Um, You know, the only uh, like sort of parting thought that I had was I was really struck. uh, One of the things I liked the most about it was the there were aspects uh, that reminded me a little bit of the Dark Tower series from Stephen King. Sure. And in particular, you know, this the, the idea of the multiverse and Amber is a little bit like, uh, you know, the tower, right? Like there's a central point um, from which all things flow and our shadows. And when you have the the ring, right, the fairy ring, the dark ring kind of moving out in Lorraine. And then later on, you come across that as the dark road in Avalon and then in Amber. I was reminded a lot, I don't know if you've read the Dark Tower series, but I was reminded a lot of that, of the Dark Tower. And, you know, I made notes about this a couple of times as I was reading um, the the Sphere or Orbit edition that I have. And then I realized after I finished the book, in the very back of the book, there's an advertisement for the Dark Tower, (laughs) um, which I never read. I didn't read back in the 80s, but um, obviously, you know, Dark Tower series was already well underway back then, Mm -hmm. so... Mm
2: -hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. All right. Well, Ethan, thank you so much for being on the show. If people want to find you online or find out more about projects you may be working on in the future, what's the best way for them to hunt you down? Uh,
0: probably the easiest and, and best channel is uh, Twitter, where I am at Ethan Schoonover, and that's S-C-H Schoonover. You can also hunt the hashtag D&D Girls, and you'll find a lot of my posts about the club that I run.
2: Perfect. And that's the letter D, the letters D, the letter N, and then the letter D. Exactly. Yes. No ampersands present. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and Hoy, how can folks find us? All right. The best
1: way to find us is, at uh, by, if you like, uh, via email, appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and MeWe. Uh, If you like the show or want to give us some feedback, uh, also you can try rating us on iTunes or your podcaster of choice. That does help people find us. And uh, since you had mentioned Patreon, Ethan, how about you uh, spell it out for us, Jeff?
2: Sure. So if you go to patreon.com slash appendix and book club, that's where you can go and show us some additional support. We release episodes early there. You're able to participate in pre-show discussions with Hoy and I before we record with the guest. Uh, there's and, the, and there's just a lot of like a lot of fun stuff that we do through the site and it's just also if you don't want to be involved in any of that stuff it's just a great way of showing us that you support the show and it helps us improve it and move forward. Um, I want to give a quick shout out to a few of our patrons: Andy Action, Noah Green, William Suter, Stanley Raduski, Daniel Bishop, Damian, Jeremy Harper, and of course Ethan Schoonover. Thank yeah. you, man thank you Ethan. Hey. <laughs> all right so that is our episode thank you for being on the show
1: thank you yes. both it was really it was a huge pleasure it's, it's always it's always fun to meet new people through the show so anyway see you in the stacks read on wow.
2: the library is closed